And thank you for leading us right to the place we need to be. So if you have your Bibles, I want to invite you to open them with me to the book of Matthew, chapter 27. We're going to be looking at a scene at the cross this morning in Matthew chapter 27. We're going to take a different perspective in Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 38. And when you're there, church, old school, I'm a little traditional. Don't fault me on that. When you're there in Matthew chapter 27, verse 38, uh, say amen for me. Amen. That means you're there. I'll be reading from the New King James Version of the Bible this morning. In Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 38, the Bible reads, Then two robbers were crucified with Jesus, one on the right and another on the left. And those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, saying, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, he saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we will believe him. He trusted in God. Let God deliver him now if he will have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Even the robbers who were crucified with Jesus reviled him with the same thing. And we'll pause right there. But keep your Bibles open because we're going to look at it a few times. Listen carefully. Listen to the passage very carefully. Because if you listen carefully, you will hear the same words of the devil that once were spoken to Jesus in the wilderness being spoken with greater intensity here at the cross. Listen carefully and you will hear the voice of Satan coming through the very people who Jesus came to save. His voice can be heard by those who passed by that day. If you are the son of God, come down from the cross. His voice can be heard from the chief priests. If you are the king of Israel, come down from the cross. His voice can be heard from the scribes and the elders. If God will even have you, if you are the son of God, come down from the cross. Even those who were crucified with Jesus were used as mouthpieces for the enemy. Jesus, in the last few hours of his life, faced enormous temptation to come down off of the cross. You see, the devil knew that even though Jesus had won battle after battle over the last three and a half year ministry that he did on earth, if he could just get Jesus to come down from the cross, then the great controversy would be over. Humanity would be left hopeless and Satan would be crowned the king of the world. The fate of the entire world, no, the fate of the entire universe rested on Jesus' Jesus's decision to stay on the cross. And in our passage this morning, it's very interesting the temptation and the medium of temptation that the devil used to tempt Jesus in his final hours. 
And it's important for us to know the temptation that Jesus faced in his last days because it is the same temptation the Bible says we will experience in these last days. Pay attention to verse 40. Those who walked by said to Jesus, you who destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Jesus faced temptation through the distortion of his very own words. You remember he did say about his own body, destroy this temple, and again in three days I'll raise it up. Look at verse 42. He saved others, himself he cannot save. If he is the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross. Jesus faced temptation through the distortion of his very own prophecy. For remember, the prophecy about the Messiah was that he would be a king, but they missed that he would suffer as a servant. Take a look again at verse 43, which is a direct quote from Psalms 22, verse 8. They said to him, he trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he will have him. Jesus faced temptation through the distortion of his very own Old Testament prophets who he inspired. In the final moments of Jesus' life, he faced temptation through the distortion of his own words. He faced temptation through the distortion of his own prophecy. He faced temptation through, the, through his Old Testament prophets who he had inspired. And if we were to wrap all those things together and put it in one nice religious Trojan horse, we could say that the final temptation that Jesus faced came through the avenue of false doctrine. You see, false doctrine distorts the words of Christ. False doctrine distorts the prophecies about Christ. False doctrine distorts the Old Testament that reveal the character of Christ. And there is a reason that Paul said to Timothy in these last days, in Timothy chapter 2, I'm, 2 Timothy chapter 2, uh, verse, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 3, for the time will come when they, men and women, will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they will heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. Little did the Apostle Paul know how accurate his words could be that every time we open our phones and we enter on Facebook or TikTok, there are algorithms that look at what we listen to and only feed us content and teachings that we already agree with. And so we're stuck in our own echo chambers. Little did he know that the doctrine we listen to would be so that we would heap to ourselves teachers that only our itching ears would want to hear. And so... It pains me that in my generation and within even the Seventh-day Adventist church, I hear sentiments about doctrine being demeaned or devalued. That sometimes in certain circles you hear doctrine being spoken of as if it's divisive. Maybe, maybe you've heard it more in, in this way. Uh, among your peers or even among other pastors at times, they'll say something like this. You know, let's stop talking about doctrine. Let's just talk about Jesus. Or they'll say, you know what? I don't want to hear the truth. I just want to hear about love. 
See, what's happened is we've made a false dichotomy between doctrine and Jesus that does not exist in the Bible. Jesus said that all scripture, all of it testifies of him. Jesus said to make disciples, to teach them all things he has commanded us. And in the Greek, teaching and doctrine are the same word. It's the same Greek word, didasko. You cannot speak right about Jesus and speak wrong about doctrine. And you cannot speak wrong about doctrine while speaking right about Jesus. The two are mutually exclusive. The teachings of the Bible testify of Jesus Christ. And in our passage today, three distinct groups of people encounter Jesus. We have those who passed by, the Bible tells us. We have the chief priests, chief priests, the scribes and the elders, who all call the religious leaders. And then we had the criminals or uh, the robbers. And for the sake of our remembrance this morning, I want to classify them in three different categories that hopefully you will be able to remember by the time you leave here today. Three groups of people who encountered Jesus on the cross. The first were the parishioners. The second were the pastors. And the third were the perps or the perpetrator. It's a slang word for a thief. Three groups of people who encountered Jesus on the cross, the parishioners, the pastors, and the perps. Let's take a closer look at the parishioner this morning because you need to know something about this parishioner. He's not lackluster. He is a dedicated, God-fearing man. How do I know? Well, he's just traveled from the far regions of Israel just to make it to Jerusalem for this event. This parishioner loves to worship. He loves the fellowship. Rumor is it, rumor has it that he actually makes a mean potluck dish after the service. This parishioner, he has just traveled through great expense and great danger to make it to this event here in Jerusalem at Passover. And here's the thing, he had no intention of witnessing a crucifixion scene this morning. He was just on his road into Jerusalem and the smug Romans put up the cross again at their most uh, important festival to remind the Jewish people if they step out of line, they're going to pay for it. Contrary to our popular song that I like to sing, on a hill far away stood an old rugged cross. Jesus actually wasn't crucified on a hill, but he was crucified on a road like every other cross. And this parishioner, you have to know this parishioner because he's a God-fearing man. He studies his Sabbath school quarterly, which means he knows what the scholars have said about Jesus, about the temple. He knows that Jesus is claiming to be the Messiah, the King of Israel. And he knows that the Bible says that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed by God. This parishioner, he comes to the feet of Jesus. He sees the clearest picture of the love of God on earth. He basks in the shadow of the cross. And the passage says that he blasphemes Jesus because his mind has been so desensitized by the doctrine of demons that now he was blinded to the wonderful majesty of the cross. That's the parishioner. Let's take a look at the pastor. The pastor 
he's not where he's supposed to be this morning because he spent the whole night awake participating in the evils of church politics just to keep his position. He's supposed to be at the temple inaugurating the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but he's here at the cross. And there's something you need to know about this pastor. He loves to study the Bible his way. He loves to teach his way. He loves to worship his way. He loves to pray his way. In fact, most of his time is spent telling others his way. He loves to preach his opinion. He loves to teach his opinion. But the one thing this pastor loves, the one thing he loves more than anything else is the prestige and the respect and the reverence that comes with being called a man of God. Oh man, it fills him with a sense of self-worth that nothing in this world could accomplish. But there's one thing that this pastor doesn't love, or rather one person this pastor doesn't love. He doesn't love this new pastor, this new teacher with his new doctrine. Sometimes his parishioners come up to him and say, pastor, pastor, hey, it's good to see you. Uh, man, hey, I, I want to give you a suggestion. You know I love you, pastor, right? You married me and my wife. You baptized my kid. You dedicated my baby. You know I love you, pastor. But have you thought, can, can I just give you one suggestion? Have you thought to try to preach and teach a little more like Jesus? And statements like that fill his heart with rage and with jealousy. This pastor comes to the feet of Jesus. He sees the clearest picture of the love of God on earth. He basks in the shadow of the cross. And the passage says that he hurls religious insults at Jesus, word for word Bible verse attacks at Jesus because his mind has been so desensitized by the doctrine of demons that now he is blinded to the beautiful majesty of the cross. That's the pastor. We've looked at the parishioner. Let's take a brief moment to look at the perp, to look at the thief, because his story, his story is the saddest of all. You see, this thief, this perp, knows that he's run out of luck. Today will be his last day on earth. He's in pain, he's in desperation, and the only reason he's there on that cross is because he got up with the wrong crowd. He followed the wrong religious revolutionary by the name of Barabbas. And ironically, his leader has now been pardoned while he is still being punished. As he's there in pain on the cross, in God's infinite love and in God's infinite grace, he's placed right next to the King of Kings. He looks over to his right and he sees the face of Jesus. He hears the words of Jesus as he's being tortured. Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. He looks at Jesus and for a moment, hope begins to arise in his heart. Maybe what Jesus says is true. Maybe he can save me. Maybe he can set me free. Maybe he can bring me with him to heaven. But as hopes go through his heart, shouts distract his thoughts. And what he hears distorts what he sees. 
He hears the religious accusations of the parishioners. He hears the attacks of the pastors. And the Bible says that he repeats the very same things that they said. Now his hope for heaven is crushed. It's this perp who hangs next to Jesus. He sees the clearest picture of the love of God on earth. He hangs in the shadow of the cross. And the passage says that the perpetrator regurgitates. He says the same thing that the pastor and the parishioner said. His mind has been so desensitized by the doctrine of demons that now he is blinded to the wonderful majesty of the cross. And he is eternally lost. Don't tell me doctrine doesn't matter. Don't tell me the teachings of Scripture are not important. False doctrine led the parishioner, the pastor, and the perpetrator to reject the love of Jesus on the cross. There is a reason that Paul told Timothy, pay close attention, pay close attention, take heed to yourself and to your doctrine. Because in by doing so, you will save yourself and those who hear you. In the late 1800s, a very popular man to Adventists by the name of William Miller had a dream. And in his dream, God gave him a box, a 10-inch by 6-inch box that he called a casket. And attached to this box in his dream was a key. And so William Miller, in his dream, went to the box that God had given him. He took the key, he opened it up, and in the box, he was amazed by what was there. There were jewels, gold, and silver, but what stuck out to him the most were the diamonds. They were placed in such an array that he says the glory of the diamonds, as the light shine on them, equaled only the glory of the sun. And as William Miller looked at these diamonds and as he appreciated the beauty that was there, he started to get a sense of responsibility in his own life, that what he had been given by God, he had to share with his neighbors. And so he calls his neighbors into his house and he says, guys, look, men, women, look at the beautiful things that I have seen that God has given me. Look at these diamonds. And as people came into the house, they were surprised too. They said, whoa, this is the most beautiful thing we'd ever seen. Some of them carefully go into the box and they grab the diamonds and they begin to inspect them in the light and they're amazed by them. Others are a little more careless and they grab the diamonds and they begin to scatter them on the tables to get a better look. And at this point, William Miller becomes a little anxious and he says, guys, please be careful with the diamonds that are in the box. Uh, they're very valuable. God gave them to me. But as he's warning people to be careful, more people come in and are more careless. And they begin to scatter all the diamonds all over the room and in the furniture. At this point, William Miller is anxious and a little scared because he knows God will hold him accountable for the diamonds that he's given him. And so he goes around trying to pick up all the diamonds. Uh, and as he's doing that, picking up the diamonds, he's noticed as more people are coming in, they're bringing in dirt and debris, trash and grass, and the diamonds are getting lost in the house. 
So he's having to funnel and he's having to work through all this dirt and debris to get these diamonds. And as he's picking up the diamonds to place them back into the box, he notices that he's picking up fake diamonds along with real diamonds. And he's concerned. He's like, who's putting fake diamonds with the real diamonds? And at this point, he says, okay, everyone, you need to go. It's time to get out. But they don't listen. And he says he became physically vexed in his soul. So he physically has to push out these people from his house. And he pushes out one person. But as he pushes out one person, two people come in. He pushes out two people. He's working with all his might, you know, he's pushing people out. And as he pushes two people out, three more people come in. And his house is left in utter chaos. The people go to the box and they fight over the diamonds and they rip the box to shreds and it breaks and it crumbles and the box is broken. And all the diamonds and the jewels and the gold are lost and scattered throughout the house. And then the people leave. And there's William Miller crying, sad, desperate. And he does something that's good for each and every one of us to do when we find ourselves in terrible circumstances. He begins to pray. And as soon as he begins to pray, an old man comes into the room with a dustpan and broom. And William Miller tries to explain to him, sir, sir, this is what happened, the box, the diamonds, the dirt. And the old man stops him and says, fear not. And William Miller watches as this man takes his dustpan and broom and cleans up the entire house. He throws away the trash. He picks up the furniture. He makes it look like a five-star maid came into the home. And he looks on the table and there is a new box. And it's open. And the jewels and the diamonds are placed right back in the box. And he says, they look like they're even brighter and more glorious than they ever were before. And he's so happy, he shouts, huzzah! Because that's how they used to shout back then. And his own shout, his own shout awakens him. You see, friends, there's something very important about diamonds. Diamonds are a beautiful, precious stone. I've heard it even said once that diamonds are a girl's best friend. There's something important about diamonds. And, and just in case you missed it, according to the dream Miller had, diamonds are like true doctrine. That they're beautiful and they have a way of catching the light and glory of God and revealing a picture of Jesus that could not be seen without them there. You see, some of us, we like diamonds, but we forget that the thing that makes a diamond beautiful is the light that shines on the diamond. I don't know if you've ever tried to look at a diamond in the dark before, but if you ever have, it's really not going to help you at all. Diamonds are only beautiful when they have the light shine on them. Physicists actually say that light can travel at 186,000 miles per second, and uh, that changes when the light hits the diamond. When light hits a diamond, that speed of light cuts in half because of the composition of the atoms in the diamond so that it slows down the speed of the light just enough for us to be able to see the different composite elements of light in a diamond. So whenever you ever look at a diamond, if you look carefully, you'll be able to see the colors of the rainbow in the diamond. And here's the thing. Doctrines are like diamonds. 
Their beauty comes when we have the light of Jesus Christ shine on them. If you keep your diamonds in the dark, then they're not going to really help anyone. And in fact, many of us grew up maybe with having diamonds used in a way to hurt people. You know, diamonds are one of the strongest rocks in the world. And if you use them in a dangerous way, they'll hurt you. They'll hurt your hands. They can cut you. But when they're used in the grace and the love of Jesus, they have a way of shining the light and the love of Jesus in a way that could not be seen if we did not have them. And I don't, I don't know about you, but I feel like sometimes within our faith, we have been told the most, what we should do is love people and accept people. And that is true. We need to love and accept people. That's very important. But at some point or another, we've become a little ashamed of our diamonds, of our peculiar truth as Seventh-day Adventists. And instead of showing them to the world and showing them how much they show the love of Jesus and how special they are, we've kept them hidden to ourselves. You know, I can remember uh, as a younger pastor, I started off in a district and I was giving Bible studies to these three older ladies. And, uh, you know, they were having a good time, but one of them who we were there for hadn't chosen to follow Jesus yet. We'd gone through all the Bible studies that I was used to going to, through. And I was like, God, like, what am I doing here? I've just wasted, not, you know, it felt like I wasted 20 nights, you know, half a year with these people. What am I supposed to do? And as I was driving to give another Bible study, I felt like God was telling me, try the doctrine of the Antichrist. Try giving them the message of the Antichrist, Daniel 7, the little horn, all those things. And I'm thinking to myself, God, there is no way I'm going to do that. Um, I'm in Canada. That's considered hate speech in Canada. Uh, I'm not going to share that kind of thing. But, you know, I try to be obedient. So I went there. I, I gave the doctrine of, of the Antichrist in Daniel 7. It came, it went, all the you know, signs of who the Antichrist was. I thought, okay, Lord, I was faithful. I did it. Nothing happened. And on my way home, I get a phone call from this elder lady's daughter. She said, Pastor Matthew, I'm so thankful because my mom hasn't been a Christian my whole life. But for whatever reason, after you left and she heard the message of the Antichrist, out of all messages, she got down on her knees with us and she accepted Jesus as her personal savior from the Antichrist doctrine. Maybe you've heard of many others. Someone hears the state of the dead for the first time. And they accept Jesus because that diamond, that doctrine, has a way of reflecting the light and the love of Jesus in just the way they need it. Maybe it's the sanctuary in 1844. Maybe it's the great controversy. Maybe it's the Sabbath. But I want to encourage you guys, don't hide your doctrine. Don't hide your diamonds. They are precious gifts given to us from a God who loves us. I remember when I first got engaged, you know, and you give your wife the diamond ring. She was showing that bling to everyone. You remember the time? You don't keep that to yourself. You put it on, you show it. You said, look, look at how much it costs. Look at how much it's worth. Look how much this guy loves me. Tricked him. No, <laughs> no, you're, you're, you're so happy to show off the doctrine, the, 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 the diamonds, because you know how much it means. And somewhere comes along the way that in our relationship with Jesus, we get a little bit timid. We get a little bit shy because sometimes people don't want to hear the truth of Jesus. But I just want to encourage you. Doctrine are like diamonds. They're beautiful. 
and we've been given so many. And I want to encourage you to share them with those around you. Let me close with this story. There's a famous Baptist uh, Presbyterian preacher by the name of John McGee, and he was out in South Africa, and he was doing evangelism. Every day, he would walk from his home to the local evangelistic site. Day in and day out, from home to the evangelistic site. And every day as he was walking, he'd notice off in the corner of his eye, kids in the area playing a game he was really familiar with. Uh, a game maybe you grew up playing, marbles, where you bounce a ball and you collect the marbles before the ball drops and you have to catch it. Anyway, I don't know if you played it, but he watches these kids play marble day after day as he walks to his evangelistic site. And one day his curiosity got the best of him and he goes closer to the children who are playing marbles to inspect kind of what they're doing. It looks the same. But as he gets closer and he looks more carefully, he notices the kids have substituted marbles for a rock that was common in the area. And he's got closer and he inspected the, the rocks. He couldn't believe his eyes. His heart kind of dropped to his stomach because the kids had substituted marbles with diamonds in the area. They had been using diamonds in the place of marbles. What am I saying? Listen, guys, we have been given such a precious jewel in the word of God. And sometimes we play around with it, not realizing how valuable it is. And so the message is very clear. It's time to pick up our Bible. It's time to restudy, relearn, reshare. It's time to take our diamonds out of the dust. God bless you.